Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Letter to Philippi Live, our daily broadcast from lettertophilippi.org, where we'll be looking at Paul's letter to Philippians, continuing daily study Monday through Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern time, 12 p.m. Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern time, 10 p.m. Jerusalem time. And today we continue looking at the uh, letter to Philippi that Paul wrote wrote to the people of uh, in in Philippi. Tricky word to say, Philippi, Philippians. And today we'll be getting into the first part of the Messianic hymn, which is in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And I just want to see if my microphone's on. So here's we are. Good. So, yes, so today we'll be starting the Messianic hymn. This is Philippians 2, 6 through 11. And this is, this is, Understood as one of the first first messianic hymns or songs of praise about Messiah Yeshua from the earliest messianic Jewish community. This was, you know, as, I, as I've said in other times before, over 1900 years before before uh, where Rabbi Stuart Dowerman wrote music for Letter for uh, Liberated Wailing Wall or or Joel Turnoff with Lamb or or Paul Wilbur was writing messianic songs, messianic hymns to the Messiah, songs glorifying the Messiah Yeshua and recognizing him as the Jewish Messiah and the Lord of the world. We have here in this section here, the, the messianic hymn where we have in the middle of the first century of the common era that in the first century, people were acknowledging Messiah Yeshua as Adonai, as the Lord of all. And as one with the one God of Israel, and we see in this in this hymn that that the understanding of Yeshua being the Eternal One who came into our world to seek and to save was understood by the earliest Messianic Jewish followers of Yeshua. And these verses, as I said, represent a Messianic hymn, which tells of the coming of the Messiah into the world as a slave, his death on the Roman stake, the cross. And his exaltation as being Lord of all creation. Many scholars believe Paul was quoting from a previously written hymn or liturgical prayer the people of Philippi would have believed in and even used in their corporate worship as a teaching tool. To emphasize the humility of Yeshua, perfectly modeled here, and to give the teaching about Yeshua in this liturgical prayer. This could be actually, as I said, along with being a, a song. This could actually be an original part of of the liturgy, the the, the liturgy of the Messianic community in Jerusalem that composed this prayer, including in including it in with their with their daily prayers and their their Shabbat prayers. That this would be a part of the Jewish worship of the Messianic Jews, the first followers of Yeshua, and it's 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 really encouraging to me to see that in in modern messian jewish siddurs that they're including this this section here especially sections from philippians 2 9 through 11 in the alenu acknowledging the place of yeshua within the jewish prayer prayer life in the jewish jewish prayer liturgy so so demonstrated by this by this prayer and as i said 
we have this here from the, the earliest Messianic Jews were acknowledging the place of Yeshua as the Jewish Messiah, but also the Lord of all creation. Biblical scholar Larry Hurtado, who recently passed away, agrees that these verses can be understood to be an early Messianic Jewish hymn or liturgical prayer, similar to other prayers in existence at the time of Paul's letter, which have been familiar to the Philippian community. So there's understanding that, that, that rather than Paul writing this, there is an understanding by, by scholars that Paul actually took, took this prayer, this liturgical piece, that was already a part of the worship of the Messianic Jewish community and, and being passed on now into Greek to the Gentile, Gentile Yeshua community was a hymn to the Messiah that was a part of the, the liturgical worship of the Messianic Jews in, in Israel. And then here Paul translates it from Aramaic into Greek for the, the uh, passing it on to the Philippians who who would understand Greek, would understand this prayer in Greek rather than in the original Aramaic. James Waddell, another, another biblical scholar, says that Paul's hymn originated from an earlier Aramaic liturgical prayer. I kind of uh, continue on the point that, that Hurtado made. This was, this was a, a prayer, a liturgical piece that was written among the Jerusalem Messianic community. And Paul here is translating into Greek and including it in his letter to the people of Philippi. Marcus Bachmouth, who was another another uh, another biblical scholar, and he and he played a very important role in in uh, in my work on my commentary. His 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 commentary on Philippians, coming from coming from a non messianic perspective really had a focus on the Jewishness of Paul and the Jewishness of the message that Paul was presenting to the people of Philippi. Bachmel understood this Philippians section 2, 6 through 11 as being written as being Pauline, representing a poetic flow from verses 1 through 4, releasing the hymn based on the shared language and theology. So Bachmel sees that, that this is actually written by Paul. That he sees that, th that there is a cont continuity of language in this in this section here, and and he sees that this is this is something that Paul actually included here as a part of the, of the of the letter. As the prayers in the Siddur, the Jewish prayer book, express Jewish theological concepts and development, this liturgical prayer hymn gives an early look at the evolution of Messianic Jewish theology. And the early liturgical development within the growing Messian Jewish and Messian and Gentile communities. As I said, this is this is one of the earliest, if understood as as it being written from the the Messianic community in, in Jerusalem. This represents one of the earliest pieces of Messianic Jewish liturgy, Messianic Jewish prayer, Messianic Jewish songs, acknowledging the place of Yeshua the Messiah as the one who is the savior of the world, the Messiah of Israel, the redeemer, the one to which all knees will bow at one day. The construction of liturgical prayers and hymns like this one, which took from Isaiah 45, 23. Isaiah 45, 23 is the, is a, the uh, refer, referential passage 
that that this prayer, this hymn, is tagged to in the Tanakh. This is whereas in the in Isaiah forty five twenty three, the passage is clearly speaking about the one God of Israel, and and him making clear that he is the one to which every knee will bow. And this is actually actually the language we have in the traditional Elenu prayer that on that day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that the God of Israel is Lord of all. In this, in this we see, see the development and, and the theological development of the early Messianic Jewish community that understood this also, this, this one day when all knees will bow to the one God of Israel includes Yeshua the Messiah, he will be the one who will bear the divine name at that final day when all creation, both seen and unseen, will acknowledge the rulership of Yeshua as, as Lord and King over all. In Yeshua, the divine nature is shared, and yet is with the framework of the one God. The two millennia of theologians would wrestle with the place of Yeshua, as well as the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Within the one God of Israel, expressed in the Shema, the core Jewish prayer of, of Deuteronomy 6.4, it appears that the earliest Yeshua followers accepted that the God of Israel became a human being in Yeshua. In line with the liturgical use of the Psalms in their worship, the early followers of Yeshua created liturgical songs honoring Yeshua the Messiah as King and Lord. And this here we have as, as, a, as a representative of an early Messianic praise song honoring Yeshua the Messiah as the Jewish Messiah and as the the, the cosmic Lord of all the universe, and this was used in their worship, in their meetings, their private private prayer times. As I said, this was a liturgical piece that, that could have been incorporated into into the corporate worship of the, the Messianic communities, and even a part of if there were to be early early uh, Messianic Jewish seders, this would be a, a prayer that would be included in that along with the traditional liturgy of the people of Israel. In addition here to containing one of the most potent and straightforward teachings on the eternal divine nature of Yeshua, the hymn also teaches the Philippians essential lessons of humility, model on the Messiah's humility and servanthood. Such servanthood and self-sacrifice offered a way for the Philippians to model the kind of unity Paul laid out in the first four verses of the chapter. Let's look more closely at the hymn line by line. So today we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, the first verse of the formal hymn. And uh, I will switch over to that so we'll read that to you, with you. Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be possessed by force. Do that again. Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to, possess, to be possessed by force. In this verse, we see Paul beginning his teaching on Yeshua's emergence into the world as a humble servant, the highest example of humility that Paul addresses in his letter, speaking of Yeshua in the form of God. Craig Keener, biblical scholar, has noted that some scholars see a contrast in this in this verse, between Adam, the first man, 
who was created in God's image, which we see in Genesis 126, as a human that sought divine knowledge and status by eating the forbidden fruit in Eden, which we see in Genesis 3. And Yeshua was eternally divine and came to our world humbly as a human. So whereas Adam, the first man, was a human who sought divine knowledge, div divine status by eating from the forbidden fruit in Eden and was against God's plan. Here we have Yeshua who was in the form of God, who was, who was divine, who entered into our world humbly as a baby and would live a life and die, live a life of humility and die the death of a slave, die a humiliating death. So whereas Adam was a man who sought to be God, Yeshua was God who became man and demonstrated the humility that, that we are called to follow. And in Yeshua, we see the correction of the sin of Adam, whereas Adam sought sought to to go on to have sought to be a, a man that became divine. In Yeshua, we see the divine becoming a human being, following the plan of God. Novation, a third-century Christian theologian, which was cited in the ancient Christian commentary in the Scripture, wrote. If Christ were only a man, he would have been said to have been in the image of God, not in the form of God. We know that humanity was made in the image, not the form of God. The novation here, early, early Christian theologian, says that, that if Yeshua was, were only a man, he would have been in the image of God, like you and I are. We are made in the image of God, not in the form of God. And Yeshua was said to be in the form of God. Not in the image of God, but in the form of God. And humanity was made in the image, not the form of God. So we have something special here that, 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 that not just coming into human flesh, but he is the divine coming into human flesh. He is the God of Israel making himself known tangibly in the person of Yeshua from Nazareth. Yeshua's pre-incarnation status his status before coming to our world was and remained divine in the form of God. As fully divine, Yeshua became man in contrast to his being just a human in the image of God on a divine mission, but he was in the image of God. He was, he was with God. He was God coming into our world as a human being. In keeping with the letter's theme of humility, Yeshua set aside his place in glory in the heavens, coming to the world as the greatest example of humility, going from the height, height of divinity to becoming a human, and as we will see in verse 7, assuming the lowest form of human, a slave who will be executed on the Roman stake on the cross. As a divine son, Yeshua came into the world as a slave on a singular mission to bring redemption to the world by his death on the cross on the stake. Demonstrating the highest level of humility by willingly giving himself to service on behalf of those he came to seek and save. Although as Messiah, Yeshua had full rights to all that, that is divine in his incarnation, 
you do not seize this power, you're possessed by force. But he willingly died as a man without exploiting his divine nature. Yeshua had the ability to call on his full power and majesty of divinity in this world. But he chose to set it aside or or as the as the phrase here says, not possess possess it by force. He did not seize on the power that he had available to him, but he said that that he came into his world to suffer and to die. And this is this is what we have as our example of the highest level of humility, the humility willing to lay down their life for the mission of God. The pre-existence of a divine Messiah was an established belief in Judaism of this time, seen in the Tanakh, most notably in the servant songs of Isaiah, especially Isaiah 52, 13, 53, 12, the, the most common of the, and most notable, the most familiar of the servant songs, the Isaiah 53 psalm, uh, Isaiah 53 servant song. In the Talmud, we also see that the pre-existence of the Messiah was part of early rabbinic thought. In the Bavli in Pesachim 54a, we read, Seven things were created before the world was made, and these are they, Torah, repentance, the Garden of Eden, Gehenna, the throne of glory, the house of the sanctuary, and the name of the Messiah. And the name of the Messiah, his name shall endure forever, existed before the sun. The rabbis listed three things that preexisted the creation of the world. The seventh being the name of the Messiah, which is drawn from Psalm 72, 17, which reads in full. May his name endure forever, his name you known as long as the sun. May people bless themselves in him. May all nations call him happy. In verse 6, Paul speaks plainly and without explanation about the pre-existence of Yeshua in line with established Jewish thought concerning the pre-existence of the Messiah. And much like the opening of Genesis 1, where God is presented as a creator of all things, here Paul makes clear his deep understanding and core theological belief that Yeshua is the pre-existent Son of God who was the source of the creation of the world. We can see Paul speaking of the pre-existence of Yeshua as a source of the creation of the cosmos. This corresponds with the Messianic community in Corinth, where he wrote, this is in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, for whom... Though whom we were through whom all were created, and through whom we have our being. As we see in the Talmud and Bavli Pesachim 54a, Paul here places Yeshua the Messiah into the creation of the cosmos. The one who entered humbly into our world as part of creation was the one who was the source of all creation. The Jewish traditions related to Enoch, Enoch demonstrate the belief in a divine missing figure was understood in part of the Jewish understanding and expectations of the second type of period, the first century of the common era. In 1 Enoch 37 through 71, 
We see the Hebrew word Mashiach twice in reference to a heavenly transcendent figure. In this, we can see that the eternal nature of the Messiah was well understood among the early Jewish followers, early Yeshua followers in Philippi and, and elsewhere. Paul here puts forward what is known as high Christology, an understanding of the eternal divine nature that he bore even before his birth into our world. An early high Christology, which means a high understanding of the, of the place of the Messiah, within the earliest domestic community, is as as Daniel Boyorin, a, a Jewish a Jewish scholar who's, who who wrote wrote has written on the New Testament and on the, on the life of Yeshua. He said that that this this is from his his book on on the Jewish Jesus, and Boyorin stated, "I submit that it is impossible to understand the gospel only if both Jesus and the Jews around him." held to a high Christology, whereby the claim to Messiahship was also a claim to being a divine man. Were it not the case, we would be very hard-pressed to understand the extremely hostile reaction to Jesus on the part of Jewish leaders who did not accept his claim. And these are powerful words, words coming from, from an, a non-Messianic scholar, Dr. Dr. Boyarin. But as he put it forward, the understanding of, of the time of Yeshua was that the Messiah would be a divine man. And without that understanding, he doesn't see, see that the, the Gospels, the message, of, the message about Yeshua being so controversial, except for the fact that in Yeshua being claimed as the Messiah, he was also being claimed as, as the divine one coming into the world. And he says that makes the only sense to there being such opposition to his claim to be the Messiah, that in Yeshua being claimed as the Messiah, he was being claimed as God of Israel coming to the world, that he was he was he was given divine status by him being the Messiah. The scholars debate the early nature of the belief in the eternal divine nature of Yeshua among his earliest earliest followers, and credit to a later development at the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century of the Common Era. We can see here that Paul, writing in the 60s of the Common Era, over 200, almost 300 years before the church councils, clearly put forward a divine Yeshua who, like the Father, was pre-existent before the Incarnation. In this verse we see, and in the, in the, the, whole, let, the whole Messianic hymn, we see the divine nature is made clear and the high Christological understanding of Yeshua as both Messiah and the Divine One who came into the world. We can also see a reference to Yeshua as the second Adam in this verse, we said earlier, as the first Adam chose to eat the forbidden fruit that would make him like God, knowing good and evil. Yeshua as the second Adam, in contra contrast, chose to lay aside his place as God to come into this world to live as a man. The second half of those verse teaches the eternal power and glory of Godhood, Yeshua willingly set aside for his life on earth. Philippians 2.6 is be understood to mean that Christ's equality with God was not something he exploited, that as such equality was intrinsically his, but so great was his humility and subservience, the will of the Father, 
that he chose to exploit, not to exploit it, but took the path of humiliation, incarnation, and death on a cross. Let me read that again. This is from, from biblical scholar D.A. Carson in his, his, uh, his uh, introduction to the New Testament. In Philippians 2.6, must be understood to mean that Christ's equality with God was not something to be exploited, but it says equality was intrinsically his, but so great was his humility and subservience, the will of his Father, that he chose him to exploit it, but took the path of humiliation, incarnation, and death on a cross. So in this, in the first verse, we'll go back to it, we'll put it back on the, on the screen. Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be possessed by force. So in this opening verse of the Messianic Kingdom, we see Yeshua set forward as the, the divine one, the divine Messiah, who came into our world humbly, who came into our world to be the second Adam, the Adam who would, who would fulfill God's plan, the Adam who would, who would not choose his own desires, but be the Adam who would be obedient to the plan of God. Whereas the first Adam was a man who sought divine status and, and ate from the forbidden fruit, and disobeyed the plan of God. Yeshua the second Adam came into our world as the divine Messiah, entering into human flesh, entering into our world, as we will see, as a baby, born, born in humble settings, and that will be, and it's something that will be celebrated by our, our Christian brothers and sisters uh, later next month at, for the, on the 25th of December for the, Christmas holiday, that he is the divine Messiah. He is the one who came into our world humbly to live a life of humility, to die the death on the Roman cross, on the Roman stake, to bring redemption. But that is not, but that is not the end of the story. He would rise from the dead. He would return to his place in the heavenlies. And one day, may it come soon, Yeshua will return as the Messiah to rule and reign of all creation, and to which every every part of creation, both seen and unseen, the physical and the spiritual world, will acknowledge Yeshua as Messiah. And we'll see that later in the in the hymn. So that's the beginning of our of our look at the Messianic hymn in Philippians chapter two, verses six through eleven, and we'll continue on that tomorrow. We'll look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, as we continue our study th through the Messianic hymn, as we look at this earliest piece of Jewish liturgy, Messianic Jewish liturgy, acknowledging the divine status and the future glorification of Yeshua, righteous Messiah. And this is a powerful time to, as I said, with, the, with our, our Christian brothers and sisters focusing now on the incarnation, on the coming of the Messiah that we'll be celebrating later next month. We, at this time, we're looking at his humble coming into our world and looking to that day, which I said, may it come soon, when Yeshua returns and brings unending Shabbat, unending life eternal, and we wait for that day.
But now we live seeking to become more and more and more the Messiah. And that's what, what Paul calls the people of Philippians to, Philippi to. And us by example, to, to seek to become more like the Messiah each day. So thank you for watching. This will conclude our, our uh, program for today. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow at 12 p.m. Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern time, 10 p.m. Jerusalem time. We'll be looking at Philippians 2.7. This is Letter to Philippi Live, a daily broadcast of Letter to Philippi, a new Messianic Jewish theological and teaching organization, of which I'm the founder and I'm the teacher of this class. If you want information, more information, go to lettertophilippi.org. There you can watch previous class videos. You can ask any questions you want. You leave a prayer request. I want to be praying for you. You can purchase a copy of our Messianic Commentary on Philippians, which this book, which this class is based off of. You can give a much needed, much needed financial contribution to our work. As we said, we are an independent organization, not funded by any any uh, any other larger organization. We're totally dependent on those who who watch our programming, who. who uh, Take part in our materials that we make available to support our work here. You can you can make a one-time or even better an ongoing monthly contribution to the work of Letter to Philippi at lettertophilippi.org. And we really appreciate you can make a Hanukkah donation as we look into expanding our work into into 2022. So thank you for watching, and we and uh, and uh, Hanukkah Simeach to those who are. Celebrating Hanukkah, we have our our first candle. I think I'll lean over and you can actually see the, the the first candle on my menorah. We'll be lighting the second second candle tonight. So blessed Hanukkah, and uh, we will see you tomorrow. So we'll be looking at Philippians two verse seven tomorrow, and the continuing look at the life, death, resurrection and exaltation of Yeshua, our righteous Messiah. Thank you for watching, and have a great day. See you tomorrow at Letter to Philippi Live. And for more information, go to lettertophilippi.org. Thank you for watching. Shalom, everyone. Happy Hanukkah, and uh, happy start of the new week.